My class will be picking up in Revelation chapter 4. When the uh, clock so rudely interrupted me on Sunday, we were down about verse uh, 6 of Revelation 4, so that's where we'll pick up tonight. Uh, But before that, we've got to do our review again, Uh, some of which is just the setting of the whole book, some of it's to keep us going in our timing of the context and everything, but I've been warning you that I was going to start making you do it, so I'm going to ask some questions tonight. Uh, Actually, the word revelation comes from the original word apocalypsis, which means what? Revealing. Because the book is not uh, a hiding of a message, it's a revealing of a message. Uh, It was important for God to get this message to the churches of the first century, especially those of Asia Minor. And what was that message? God wins. No matter what it looks like in this world, God wins. And since it is a... Well, we learned in the first couple of verses of chapter 1 that it's written in signs, right? Uh, Which is apocalyptic literature. It's a signed uh, language or message. And so, being the fact that it's written in signs, what do we know about a sign? Can't, it can't represent itself, right? It's got to represent something else. So how do you figure out what the sign represents? All right, one way you do it is to go back and look at the way that those uh, signs were used in other places, primarily in the Old Testament with the prophets and such. Anything else? Sometimes it tells you right in the text. Anything else that's important about it? You've got to stay in that first century time, uh, time period because it has no meaning whatsoever to put it into our culture today uh, and take it out of their culture. It has no meaning for them whatsoever. So as, as, as this message begins, John is exiled on the island of Patmos. About what year did I tell you this was written? Yeah, about 96 to 98, somewhere right around in there. Uh, so he's exiled on the island of Patmos. And in chapter 1, uh, while he is there, he hears something behind him and he turns around and what he sees is a vision and there's jesus and he's in the midst of the of the lampstands or candlesticks and he has stars in his hand and as you get into chapters two and three where these letters are actually written spoken and recorded to the seven churches of asia minor we find out what that means that he's in the middle of the lampstands and the and holding the stars and what were the lampstands the churches and what were the stars the messengers to those churches. So he's in the midst of the churches and he's upholding those people who are responsible for doing his work with these churches. And so he has these seven letters that are written in chapters 2 and 3 to these specific churches and each one has a, a cultural environment, if you will, a city in which they exist that's different than whatever the other cities are. And so the churches have kind of had some kind of connection, obviously, to their culture. And so each letter written to them connects to that a little bit. Uh, There are two churches about which nothing bad is said. There's one church that has nothing good said about it. Uh, But but each one of these, especially, well, not each one of them, the two that nothing bad is said about them is not the same. But the other ones all have the same message, and that message is a conditional judgment. If you don't repent and fix this, then I'm going to show up and I'm going to bring judgment on you. So the book is about God winning and this judgment that comes on Rome. But before he talks about Rome, he talks about them. 
and what's happening inside of them. And if they don't fix that, they're going to get the same kind of judgment that Rome is going to get. So it'd be very foolish for them to rejoice in the message that Rome's going to be punished for their sins while they themselves are existing in a way in which they deserve God's punishment. Doesn't that make sense? So he sends a message to them specifically about themselves first. Then we get into chapter 4. And chapter 4 is the... The beginning of the visions. Uh, this is, I know John saw Jesus in chapter 1, but chapter 4 is where he really starts. It really becomes apocalyptic at this point. Before this, Jesus has been talking to him, and now John is recording what he sees. And that's what's interesting about the way this book is written. It's not that Jesus tells him, John, I want you to say this, and I want you to say this. John is looking, and it's as though he is seeing not a movie, but kind of like that. He's seeing and observing things that are happening, and as he sees them, he records what they are. And then sometimes God tells him what that means, and then sometimes it's you got to stay in its setting and you have to figure it out from apocalyptic research. So in chapter 4, when he first starts these visions that he sees, uh, he hears a voice like a trumpet that was a call, you know, the call to go and see what's happening. And so he goes to see what's happening and what's the message of chapter 4? I told you this is the foundation to start going forward is this message of chapter 4. Do you remember what it was? God is still on the throne. That's vital. Because no matter what it looks like, and very easily, especially in their day, it would be very easy to look around and see and think that Rome is in charge. The Domitian is ruling now. And by the way, persecutions didn't start with Domitian. I mean, remember when we were going through the... Uh, the uh, uh, independent books or the writers of the New Testament at, after Hebrews, and we talked about how that some of them were written really close to the destruction of Jerusalem and how that these, these books were at a time frame in which Nero had started persecuting Christians because of what had happened with the fire in Rome. Remember that? So persecution had begun, but they were really confined to Rome. By the time you get to Domitian, they have spread. And so as they've gone throughout the world, they have continued to increase. And so you get to this place in chapter 4, and you would realize if you're living at the end of the first century, Rome's getting stronger, not weaker, right? They're gaining more power. They're gaining more influence. It's getting harder to be a Christian. And so it kind of starts to look like, from a world perspective, that, well, God's not winning anymore. Rome's winning. And so it's vital for them to know right here in the beginning of all these visions that God is still on his throne. So... As we started through chapter 4 there, you remember, he, he sees that God is on his throne, and around the, and it's about power, it's about uh, glory, it's about who he is as the creator, and he has this rainbow around his throne there in verse 3, which meant, what's the purpose of a rainbow? What did it say from God? It's a promise that God fulfills his word, always, right? And the very first rainbow was seen after Noah and his family came off of that ark after the flood, Right? And that was a promise from God that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. Now, these first century Christians now look back and they know the account of Noah and they know what God said about it and they know that's where the rainbow has begun. What's happened from the time that God gave them the rainbow and the day that, he, that John sees this vision? Has he destroyed the earth again with a flood? No. So God keeps his promises, right? So he sees God on the throne and there's the rainbow about the promises and there are 24 elders or or who are sitting on these 24 thrones and if you were here sunday you know that i connected that to the two covenants 12 representing that religious idea of the old covenant 12 representing the religious idea of the new covenant the the patriarchs as well as the apostles and they're there and they're clothed in white or they are pure and they have crowns and remember paul talking about the crown that is laid up for those who are faithful to god he was dealing with that at the end of his life 
So these are those who have passed on and been faithful under both covenants. We also saw in verse 5 the thunderings and lightnings and voices. And we dealt with the fact that throughout time in the scriptures, when that's mentioned, it's talking about some kind of a shift in power, right? So John's being told right off the bat here in these visions that God's still in charge and there's about to be a shift in power. Okay, that's where we'll pick it up. Verse 6. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Now, we, we haven't seen anything about the sea of glass, but as you continue on the book of Revelation later on, you're going to see that that kind of connects with humanity. It's not like, you know, there isn't literally a street of gold in heaven, right? And you know there's not literally uh, a sea of glass either. But when you think about water that is like glass, you think about purity, right? Clear, it's clear and it's pure. And so we're seeing humanity here, and evidently the connection is this is a humanity that, that is connected with God. I mean, they're in heaven where he sees this vision, right? He's, they're not these people who are waiting in the place called torment. So humanity is here, at least those who are faithful, who are connected to God. And on top of that, there are four creatures who are here who are full of eyes in front and in back. You ever had, you ever, uh, had your kids wonder if you had eyes in the back of your head? What did that mean? Yeah, you didn't see them, but you knew what was going on anyway, right? Okay, that's knowledge, right? So these people, these creatures that are around the throne have some kind of knowledge that's being identified here. Let's see what what it is. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. So we have wild animals, domesticated animals, mankind, and the birds of the air. Pretty much all of the creation there. Now, the fish of the sea are not mentioned, but they're going to be mentioned in just a minute. He's leading towards something. So he sees around the throne these four living creatures, which, by the way, what's the number four represent in your notes? Something of the creation, doesn't it? And if you were here Sunday night, and you know when Jared was going through the Pew Packers thing, he went through those days of creation, and we talked about, or they talked about, man, animals. We're talking about domesticated, wild, birds of the air, all those things. That was a part of the creation, wasn't it? Okay, what does that mean? Keep going. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, I'm going to stop there before we talk about what they're saying, six wings. Now, I've, I've told you this. I should have reviewed this a little bit. It's, it's one of the challenging is, uh, things of apocalyptic literature is you just don't need to get bogged down in every single sign. But there are signs that you need to draw out that help us stay in this context. And every time it seems to have to do with these numbers, especially. Now, I don't know why they, these guys have winged, these four living creatures, but I know why they have a different number than the number we're going to see come up in just a minute. What's the number six represent? That's the number of mankind. <laughs> and that's the number of mankind, which ironically is less than the number of God, right? The number of deity is the number seven. The number of man is the number six. And so what we're being told about these living creatures, they represent who's on the earth. This is not deity. We're not reading about deity. If you see the drawings, and by the way, I was doing some research today for the slides for the Sunday sermon, and it kind of connects to some of these things I don't want to tell you just yet about it because I've got a lot of work still to do. But it kind of connects to some of these things. And when you get online and you start looking for a picture for a, a PowerPoint background or something and you start right reading about 
or looking looking for searches like this, the four living creatures around the throne or something that connects with hell or whatever, you get pictures that are going to give nightmares, right? I mean, you put these living creatures there, and they're like, I don't know, you're going to get an R rating on that movie no matter what it has in it just because of the viciousness of these creatures. Yet that's not what we're reading about, is it? What we're reading about is these these, the creation itself as it connects to mankind in this picture. And they're all crying out something. And what is it? We'll finish the verse. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What's the number three represent? Complete? Okay. Why would they say... Holy, holy, holy. What is holy? What's it mean? What is what is holy? Is it something that's connected to God? Something that He pronounces? Like righteous kind kind of? You know, righteous is not what I decide is right or wrong, but it's what God does. Isn't that the same way it is with holy? Holy is something that has been proclaimed holy by God. And yet these creatures are crying out that God is holy. But the thing is, there were a lot of things in the scriptures that were identified as holy. I mean, the temple was a holy place, wasn't it? It had a holy place and a most holy place, didn't it? Okay, but that's not the same thing as deity, is it? No. So when these creatures cry out, they don't just cry out holy as God. They cry out holy, holy, holy because the number three is what? God is absolute. There is nothing about God that's not holy. Now, what that comes down to is that means that, you know, if we look at it from our perspective, we like to think about God's grace. That's amazingly holy, right? Because I don't deserve what God does for me, and so anything he offers me is his grace, and that's amazingly holy. But what about God's judgment? Is it also holy? I mean, when he brings judgment, do you know where grace is mentioned for the first time in the Bible? It's mentioned when he's talking about the coming flood. Of Genesis chapter 6 through 9, when all those people die. That's an act of God's grace because it protects a seed line that's going to bring about a Messiah. It is because it's, it's holy, because God pronounces it that way. So there's nothing about God that is not holy. And these, the creation itself, you know, the psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And so what we're seeing in this first vision is all of these creatures, these four creatures who represent all of the creation, including humanity cries out to the existence and the holiness of God. Now, John's not saying that everybody in the world praises God or believes God exists or whatever, but everything about who we are, how we are made, how we exist, everything about our life cries out to the fact that there is a creator and that he is God. How in the world is it possible for us to produce electric signals that cause a heart to beat from the day that you're conceived or the, however quickly your heart starts beating, till the day that you die. How? Do you think it to happen? How does it work? It's because that's the way a creator designed us. And so all of us, all of the creation cries out to the existence of God and how holy he is. So these creatures are bowing down and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And by the way, he's not like creation He has always been here. He was, he is, and he always will be. And that's in contrast to the emperor. Okay? Keep reading. 
Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. You see how everything is connecting back to creation? And now he's saying the 24, which are representative of the saved from the old and the new, right? All of the saved, that's what it represents, those people. Those people, why is it? Here's the question. Why is it that we worship God? It's because based on, the Hebrews writer says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's why you worship God, because of the evidence. You see the evidence here in this word. You see the evidence out here in this world. And you know that God exists. Through this word, you learn a little bit about him. Enough about him to know that he's worthy of our worship. And you bow before him. And that's what they're saying. Not only does the whole world point to the existence of God and his pure holiness. But it causes mankind to also bow down before him. That doesn't happen to the emperor. Is there evidence that the emperor is deity? No. In fact, all the evidence says the emperor is human. The only evidence is that he is human. He doesn't have the power of deity. They've already had several emperors, haven't they? And they're going to have several more. All right, chapter 6. I mean, chapter 5. I didn't want to skip a chapter. Chapter 5. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Who's on the throne? God is. That's who was in chapter 4 on the throne that all these creatures are bowing down before. And in his right hand of he that sat on the throne, there's a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, we don't know this just yet if you're just reading through the the visions. But what you're going to find out is this scroll that is in the hand of God is the future. What he has in his hand is a description or a recording of what's about to happen to the church, through the church, and by the church. Okay, so what he sees is this, this scroll. That would, be, that would create a quite a bit of anticipation, right? Because one of the first things that God told him, or Jesus told him in, Genesis, or in Revelation chapter 1 is, I want you to write the things that you have already seen, and the things that are happening now, and the things that are come, to come. So now he sees God, and he's holding this scroll, and now he wants to know what's in the scroll so he can write it all down. All right, verse 2. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. I think it's significant that uh, the one that John sees that uh, asks the question is not just an angel, but he identifies it as a strong angel. You know, the angels had responsibility to carry out the providence of God, but there are different responsibilities involved with that. Some things are just happening all the time. Some things are quite a bit bigger, aren't they? And you remember the account where there's 185,000 killed overnight of the Assyrians who were attacking the southern kingdom of Judah? They were outside of Jerusalem, and 185,000 are killed overnight. That's not just a regular angel, is it? You know, there are places in the scripture where we're, t- we're told about these that we call archangels or whatever. They're very powerful. Okay, so this is one of those. A very strong angel who, and, and if anybody could, could take this scroll out of his hand and read it, it'd be the strong angel, right? 
The only thing is, he can't do it. And so he asked the question, who can do it? And there's nobody there. There's nobody in heaven already that can do it. There's nobody on the earth that can do it. Nobody has gained the ability to open that scroll. And John cries about it. Why does it make him cry? Yeah, this whole message of Revelation is about what's coming. And there it is right there in God's hand. And nobody can tell him what's in it. Keep reading. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Both of those were prophecies, by the way, about the coming of the Messiah from the Old Testament. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So he's weeping and and he's told by one of these elders, there's no reason to cry because there is somebody here who can open it. And all of a sudden he sees on the scene a lamb, and it's interesting to me how this is worded, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Is that what you'd expect a lamb to do that had been slain? If it's been killed, it's laying down, isn't it? This one is standing as though it had been slain. And it connects all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve have sinned and God shows up in the garden and he starts pronouncing their, their judgment. And one of the things that he says in verse 15 is that through the seed of this woman there was coming this one. And this one would have his heel bruised, Right? But he would crush the head of Satan so there would be a significant wound. And so as he sees this Lamb of God, which we know through the prophecies is the Messiah, right? This is Jesus. So as he sees this Lamb, it is he has this wound. He has been slain. But there's something different about him than these creatures that are around the throne, the four or even the 24, but especially the four. And what's different about him is, well, he has seven horns. They had wings, didn't they? How many of them? Six wings, and he has seven horns, and he has seven eyes, and they have seven spirits of God that go out into all of the earth. What's the number seven? Deity. Uh, we use fancy words sometimes. I don't like to use them because I have a hard time spelling them or pronouncing them, or sometimes I don't even know what they mean. Uh, but there's words like omnipotent. Do you know what that means? All-powerful. Omniscient. All seeing or knowing. That's what he's just said. The one that he has seen is deity. Deity that was wounded and yet is standing there. And by all of this, he has become qualified. He has the power of deity. He has the wisdom or knowledge of deity. And because of this qualification, which by the way, by the fact that he is the lamb that has been slain, we're reading about the fact that his death and burial and resurrection, right? That's what, that's what fulfilled the responsibility of him being the Messiah. So he says, this is the one who has qualified himself to open this scroll because he's the one that sacrificed. So Jesus is not the strong angel. And he's not one of the, the, the four creatures that are connected to humanity and the creation. He wasn't created. He is deity and he's qualified to open the scroll. So he takes the scroll from the hand of God. Verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp 
and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but here's what I want you to see happen. First off, the lamb takes the scroll, and when he does this, these creatures that have been bowing down before God bow before him, and they have a harp, and they have bowls. Now, this is one of those passages that everybody tries to take not everybody, but the people who want to try to justify it, take it and they say, see, there's instrumental music in heaven so we can have it in worship today. Tell me how you know, tell me what you know about signs. They don't represent themselves. So when we're told here that these, these that are bowing down before him have harps, here's what we know. They don't have harps. They have something that is represented by this harp. And what would be represented by this harp would be praise. They have praise, and the second thing they have is prayers. These bowls are, we're told, the prayers. So these creatures that are around the throne are offering praise and prayers from man. And who are they offering it to? The Messiah. So God's still on the throne, chapter 4. And being on the throne, he is worthy of worship, and all the creation reveals that. But when you get to chapter 5, guess what? The Lamb's also worthy of worship. He is deity. God's on the throne. The Lamb prevailed to make it possible for us to go to the throne. And so they worship the Lamb as well. It says it. He tells us itself. That's what they are. They are prayers. Yeah, that's not a sign when he says that. The sign is... These uh, golden bowls full of incense. The, the interpretation is given to us. It is the prayers of the saints. All right? And that will come up again, by the way, several times. Verse 9. And they sang a new, a new song, saying, You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And here's why. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we, and that actually could be translated, they shall reign on the earth, which, by the way, connects back to Romans chapter 5, and that is the fact that the gospel reigns on the earth. So Christians, the kingdom of God on the earth, we're reigning. Doesn't feel like it all the time, does it? But the very fact that this lamb has prevailed, has been victorious, has overcome the world, means God wins. And if God wins, what about his kingdom? We win too. So he's basically saying we worship God, we worship the Son, and we praise him because of what he has made of us. And by the way, these living creatures that are crying this out are showing you their, the fact that their humanity are representative of humanity by the fact that they're talking about being redeemed, right? Jesus didn't die for the animals, did he? The answer to that is no. I didn't see any heads. He didn't die for the angels. He died for mankind, didn't he? Okay, keep reading. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. I've got to stop there. You know, I don't know what that number is. Uh, I guess I could figure it out if I wanted to work at it hard enough, but I really didn't want to because I don't think it matters. But here's what I do want you to know. What's the number 10 represent? It's a fullness of some kind of rule or power, right? So you could say the kingdom of God is under God's power fully, right? So the number of ten would fit there. Well, as these people are crying out, though, he's talking about the angels 
all these angels that he sees, and there's so many of them that he just says tens of thousands of thousands and thousands and thousands. You know, every one of those connects to the number 10. Every one of them. So he's not just talking about the fact that the angelic powers that control God's providence, carry out God's providence and all that, are under his control, but they're absolutely under his control. They don't do things on their own. When they did things on their own was in Genesis chapter 3 when the devil stepped aside and went beyond his authority and he suffered, didn't he? These are the, the angels do God's bidding, not their own. And so as we see these creatures here worshiping God, what John now sees is all these angels that are ready to carry out, and there's enough of them too, right? Whatever that number is, there's enough of them. They're ready to carry out whatever it is that God sets forth to happen, which, by the way, as he starts opening these scrolls or the seals on the scroll, that what they're going to carry out is judgment on Rome. Verse uh, 12. Here's what the angels are saying. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So even the angels praise God. And we have, we have people today who worship angels. You know, it's, it's anything mysterious people worship. They think it's spiritual and all that. I had a guy show up at my office once when I was preaching in Jupiter. Middle of the week, knocked on the door. I went to the door and he was telling me how he had seen this 10-foot tall angel that told him what to do. He told him to come visit me and... All this stuff. It was not a very good conversation, but uh, the point I'm making here is they're not deities. The angels were just messengers of carrying out God's providence. That's all they ever. That's the only role they ever had. And so, as John sees them about to carry out God's providence with this nation, he also hears them praising God. And it's inter- maybe it's not significant. Maybe it is, but they praise him with seven uh, in, in seven ways, and seven happens to be the number of deity again, doesn't it? 13. And every creature which is in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea. Now we've got that other category. And all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever so the message is the same from all from everybody from all the creation from all of mankind from all of the redeemed who have been uh, who are already there as a part of this that john is seeing they're all saying the same thing god is worthy of our worship he is still on the throne jesus is worthy of our worship he is deity that was displayed in the fact that he redeemed us through his own life and death and burial and resurrection we praise god because of who he is all of the all of the creation does and then these the, the creatures who are there say, Amen. Which means what? Literally translates, so be it. What it is, is it's kind of a finality. It's saying, uh, this is true, it's a fact, and it's beyond question. Okay, so these creatures say, Amen to that, the, who God is and who the Son is. And they, 24 elders fall down and worship Him. So all the redeemed from these covenants fall down and worship Him. Okay, chapter 6. Now, before we get into chapter 6, I want to tell you there are three sets of seven that are coming up, uh, starting here in chapter 6. You have this scroll that, that God has been holding, that the Lamb has now taken. He's going to open these seven seals. That's the first set. All right? And each one of these seals is going to reveal something. And then when you get to the seventh seal, the seventh seal is going to reveal seven trumpets. And then as you start through those seven trumpets, each one of them reveals something. And then when you get to the seventh trumpet, the seventh trumpet reveals seven bowls of wrath. 
So each one of these sevens brings out something more that's about to happen. Now, as he opens these, this scroll, we've already figured this out, though we're going to see it more in the text now. I just told you it a while ago. As each one of these seals are open, what you start to see is the future. You start to see what's coming. Now, I think that most people, uh, most teachers have missed these seals. Uh, I think that we try to make too much out of, out of what's here. Uh, let me say it this way. I don't want to get sidetracked, but let me say it this way. Uh, has our God been honest with us? Okay. So he's honest with us when he talks about, you know, when we're immersed into Christ, the blood of Jesus is applied and we become a new creature. He's honest about that, right? And he's honest about the fact that God's face is toward the righteous, like I talked about Sunday in the sermon. He's honest about that. And he's honest about... Uh, Heaven waiting, that crown of righteousness waiting for those who finish this race. He's honest about that? Is he also honest when he says things like he said to the church of Asia Minor, when he said things like, you're going to be, Satan's going to attack you for ten days. Is he honest about that too? Yeah. Is he honest when he turns to the disciples and says, oh, by the way, they're going to hate you. You're going to go out there and you're going to try to do good and you're going to try to teach them and give them life and light and they're going to hate you and they're going to abuse you and they're going to throw you into prison because they hated me. Is he honest about that? See, so the, the, the point I'm trying to get across is God doesn't give us this false idea of what to expect about following him. He gives us the truth. These seven seals, as we start to see them opening, are not God's judgment. What they are is God being honest with the people saying, look... I win, but I want you to realize it's going to get worse. You know, Rome is not yet at this place where judgment's going to happen. It's going to start happening, but it's going to get worse before it does. So these seven seals are going to reveal, and here's why I say that. Uh, again, I'll point out not everybody agrees with me on that, and that's okay. But in just a minute, you're going to see one of the seals open, not one of the early ones, one of the later seals open, and the, the, those who have suffered for the cause of Christ are going to ask God, how long is it going to be before you judge them? Well, that makes no sense whatsoever as a question if the first seals are a judgment, do they? Judgment, 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 judgment. God, how long are you going to judge them? Well, what have I been doing? See? So he's not revealing judgment. What he's revealing is things are going to happen. They're going to be worse. So let's start the seals. He's still watching now, seeing all this as a vision. Now, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a, loud, with a voice like thunder, come and see. Thunder is something that alerts you, right? What's it tell you? What does thunder tell you? There's a storm coming, right? If you hear thunder, you know a storm's coming, right? Or at least it's close, right? Okay, so here's a voice like thunder saying, come and see what's in this seal. And I looked and behold, a white horse. What's white? Purity, okay? A pure horse. And he who sat on it had a bow... And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Okay, you see now why it's, people start to say, well, this must be God's judgment. He sends purity, and he sends them out to conquer Rome. Except, again, that doesn't make sense, because in just a short while, the Christians are going to ask, how long before judgment? But that's not what he's talking about here. All right, Didn't these creatures that just bowed down before God in chapter 5 say that we or they shall reign? Well, he's talking about what Jesus has done, and because of him redeeming us, we shall reign on the earth. Right? Am I the only one that heard that? Okay, okay, others heard it too. I thought maybe I was the only one awake. 
Uh, okay, so they said that. So now, all of a sudden, this first seal is open, and what John sees is this white horse, which we know represents purity, and it's going out into the earth, and it has with it weapons of warfare. But what this, this creature or this person that is on this horse is doing is he has a crown. He has a crown, and it was given to him, and the conquering that he is doing is through this crown. That's the gospel. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 says what? You may know what that says. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye, go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Isn't that a great, great commission? That's this horse. They're redeemed, just like we said back in chapter 5 around verse 10. They are redeemed, and they are reigning by going out and conquering the world with the gospel. That's the first thing that's going to happen. Now, here's a question. If you're one of these Christians at the end of the first century who's living in a world in which it's illegal to be a Christian and they are persecuting you, well, how's that going to go when you go out with the gospel and take it to other places? How's that going to go for you? Yeah, not great. It's going to go great from the perspective of the gospel has power to change lives anyway, but it's going to make it harder on you, isn't it? Well, let's go to that second seal. When he opened the second seal... I heard the second living creature saying, come and see, and another horse, fiery red. That represents blood, right? Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as blood. It's guilt, blood. Went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. So the end result of going out with the gospel, that's the thing. God gave them a job to do. He opened the door for them to go through it. Just like he told the church at Philadelphia, I have set before you an open door. Time to go through it. They go through it, and the consequence of that is they're going to die. How much motivated are you going to be to take the gospel out if God says to you? Remember, he's honest, right? If God says to you, listen, I've given you a job to do, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to take the gospel out, and then they're going to kill you for it. You're going to go? You know, if, if, if Greg kind of organizes our trips to Peru, uh, those of you who went this year know that Greg likes to have meetings. Hey, Tressa, if you translate this, in the, you don't have to write this part. Uh, so Greg likes to have meetings, right? Okay, and in those meetings, those of you who were in there, did he tell you stuff like, Man, if you drink the water, you're going to be sick, right? They tell you things like don't go anywhere by yourself because you get abducted. or he, he can tell you all the things that go wrong, and you still went, didn't you? What if he had said, listen, we're going to all die before we get back. How many of you are going? A little harder, isn't it? A little harder. Okay, that's what God just told them. The first seal says you're going to keep going with the gospel because you're committed to the gospel. And the second seal says when you do that, it's going to make everything worse. So why do it? Because the Lamb has prevailed and redeemed us. Because of Him, we have hope. Isn't that what we're supposed to have for everybody? Okay, we'll pick up on the third seal Sunday morning. Let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we can come before your throne tonight, and we're so thankful, Father, that it's because of your Son and his sacrifice. We're so thankful, Father, that you have told us uh, all that you have in your word and that we can see uh, the truth of who you are 
what you know, what you do, and that we can trust in you at all times. Help us to know, Father, that even today you're still in command, that you're still on the throne, and your Lamb is still saving those who will follow him. Help us to trust in you at all times. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.